I don't think anything in nature moves the way cars do. Airplanes fly just like birds, but nothing quite moves like a car. And I think it really represents what we can do as people. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Art Center's transportation design program has a type, and at first glance, Vicente Magana seems to fit it perfectly. Lifelong obsession with cars? Check. A childhood spent sketching every type of vehicle his imagination could conjure? Check. An insatiable desire to land a job designing supercars and road testing them at top speed? Well, that's where Vicente, a spring 2019 Art Center graduate, broke away from the pack and started charting his own course. Vicente is the rare car guy whose driving passion is not to design the ultimate driving machine. Instead, he dreams of designing a public transportation system that serves both community and planet. As the son of Mexican immigrants and the first person in his family to attend college, Vicente's upbringing instilled a desire to use his education to improve the quality of life for those who need it most. And while attending Art Center, Vicente seized every opportunity he could to apply his seasoned problem-solving skills toward the greater good. I was so intrigued and impressed by Vicente's unique combination of courage, empathy, and humility that I wanted to better understand the journey that brought him to Art Center and where he hopes to go from here. As such, he struck me as the ideal candidate for this season's interview of a recent graduate. Please enjoy my conversation with Vicente Magana. Let's learn a little bit about you. And I often start with this question about my guests as kids and as, as mm -hmm. children. And I'm particularly interested in their kind of creative sensibility. And from the little I know about your story, right. you were quite aware of it from a very early age, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, uh, as, as a kid, my dad worked construction. So a lot of times when I would watch him work, uh, I would just sit there a lot of the times, just watch him do whatever he was doing and, and wondering if there was uh, a different way of doing it or maybe doing it with less material or or just a faster way to do it so that the day was, I guess, more efficient. I know I was looking for efficiency at the time, but I was always looking for trying to get rid of, of redundant materials or tools or or processes that don't really need to be there. And how old would you have been? Uh, I don't know. I was... I don't know, maybe about five, six, around <laughs> around that age. Yeah, um. Precocious. And I'm really interested in the fact that you're answering this question of creativity this way, this kind of natural instinct for efficiency, for a certain kind of flow. Hmm. Can you elaborate on that at all, of why you see that as... I can see why it's creative, right, but right, why right. is it creative for you? Well, I think the the reason I was kind of maybe taught to to think that way or forced to think that way was because coming from a kind of humble background, we couldn't always have everything. So if we could do more with less, everybody won. Can you tell me a little bit more about your background, about your home, about your parents and family? Uh, well, I'm Mexican-American. Uh, both my parents are immigrants. Uh, my mom, uh, she's a principal now here uh, in, in the U.S. for two Montessori Children Academies. And uh, my dad worked construction his whole life. He's on early retirement. His body just couldn't take it anymore. So my mom really uh, encouraged the creative side. 
and the actual building side of it I got from my dad. So a little bit more uh, background. So the cars, um, and also I'm going to take you back to your childhood a little bit too. So there was the sensibility of doing more with less, but there was also a fascination and a connection with cars, right? That's, it's my obsession. It's not just cars, it's, it's any vehicle. Now systems, as I grew I started to really appreciate systems, uh, manufacturing, um, product planning, all that stuff that goes into making a vehicle. Uh, public transportation is, is something that I'm fascinated with and and, and kind of sad that it hasn't really caught on here like in, in, in other parts of the world. I know there are a lot of art-centered people who would listen to this podcast mm-hmm. and will relate to you because we have our sure. car lovers yeah, here right. in abundance. Right. I am also imagining a listener who thinks about their car like they get in it, they go to work, or they go to visit somebody, or they use it for a very simple... And they have never really considered a passion for an automobile. And what I want to ask you to do is, can you explain to them, what is it about cars that's so beautiful, that's so compelling, that stirs your soul the way it does? I don't think anything in nature moves the way cars do. Airplanes fly just like birds, right? Sure. But nothing quite moves like a car, and I think it really represents what we can do as people. And, mm. and I just can't compare it to anything else that we can just go out and see out in nature just in its natural environment. So we created that vehicle and, and the environment, and it created the environment for itself. So it's kind of this vicious cycle where at least here, we're able to live the way we do because of that transportation that we created. So that's what what excites me, that it can always evolve, it can always change, we could always make it more efficient, we could always have it adapt to us and us to it. So there, it's something about human capacity, and it's also something about its uniqueness in the world. Right. And that it kind of presents a, a sense of motion that is only born of what human beings can create. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some people I know look at cars as you know, rolling sculpture or rolling art. Do you relate to that kind of notion as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's, there are endless, endless metaphors. beautiful cars. I mean, just the function side of it, the, the utility side of it, the fact that everybody benefits from it, that interests me maybe a little bit more than, than the aesthetics of it. And when you go back to, again, your, the sensibility as a child, mm-hmm. can you remember that first moment where you saw that car? Did it suddenly strike you like a bolt of lightning that's the most incredible thing i've ever seen or was it just something that snuck up on you uh i have a lot of memories as a kid but there's a few that really stick out uh and then my dad always again worked construction so he had an old f100 and just hearing and watching him work on it i think the sound is what probably got me the most mm. it was mm. you know your 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 big american v8s that that really brought me into it And there was something about the smell of burning gasoline that I can't get enough. Now, I don't go around sniffing gasoline or, or, or anything <laughs> like that, but watching these, these race cars, performance cars, and when we go to the drag races out here in Ontario, you know, the drag just pass by and, and the, the burned and unburned fuel, then, you know, as soon as they pass, it's just, it's just part of the experience, mm-hmm. along with the sound and the vibration. <laughs> It's the sound. It's, it's alive. The smell, it's everything. It's the look. Yeah. It's the feel. It's all it's all your senses converging into this 
Yeah. Wow. It's yeah, I, a bit lost for words because it's just so intense. The, the the I guess the love and respect I have for it. All right, well, let's now talk about your journey to Art Center, which I'm interested in as well. And I want to get a little bit about your education and, and uh, how you learned about Art Center and what brought you here. Well, as a kid, I was just like a lot of other kids. I always drew, you know, on the margins of the paper. I, I always did that. And, and it was always cars because that's all I ever thought about. But I didn't know about Art Center until a few years after high school and started that whole journey. I actually took the the tour, and I knew I had to go. I knew this is where I needed to be. And then asked about, you know, tuition, and once I regained consciousness, I knew I had to come <laughs> up with a plan. <laughs> and tell to, us to about your plan. So that takes us back. So you, you wanted to come, you know you wanted to come. Did you actually apply? Or what were you more concerned about figuring out the tuition piece before you applied? So I applied, I got accepted my third time applying. I applied twice before taking the art center and night classes. Mm. Um, but I was working at the time. And I knew I wouldn't be able to work and go to art center because it's 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 a very heavy heavy uh, curriculum. So at the time, this is back in two thousand nine, is when well, you know, the the recession started a couple years before that. So I figured I had I had a steady job. I was working, making you know good money at the time, and I didn't have a lot of expenses. And so houses were very very cheap, and you know there was incentives to buy, and and so I purchased. A house. I, I I bought a house with the plan of of holding it uh, long enough to where the equity would grow, and I would have some money to help at least pay for some of Art Center, and it worked. It didn't completely pay off Art Center, but it really did help with a lot of the costs and a few of the of the first terms. Are you willing to give Center. us the numbers of how you did this? Because <laughs> so, what I heard, it was pretty great. Uh, right. So so I picked up the house uh, for one seventy hundred seventy thousand. This. And the house had sold, I think, the either the year before, two years before, for about like five fifty. And just so I understand, did you delay coming to Art Center while you were working on this plan, this investment deal? Well, yeah. So, so since I've been rejected twice because uh, I had been working a lot, I didn't quite put the time needed into the application, into the portfolio pieces. It was just kind of just a lot of ideation, a lot of stuff to show. So, I bought the house. I started renting it out, saved up some money, and then. I, I quit my job and just focused on my application. And um, I worked on it for you know, maybe about like two and a half, three months straight, just artwork, just artwork, just sketching, just ideation, just research stuff. And I applied and, and I was accepted. So that was, you know, the happiest day of, of my life till up to that point. And so I, I ended up keeping the house for a few terms in. And then I, I finally sold it to help pay for, for some. And what'd you sell for? Uh, I sold for three sixty five. There you go. Uh, so that investment in that house covered what percentage of your art center expenses, roughly? Well, n not necessarily tuition, but cost of living because I was living out here. So I paid my rent for for quite about uh, quite a while. I, I paid it for about uh, almost two years, uh, and then materials, uh, food, all that. It it goes by pretty quick. I can understand immediately why somebody like you would go into transportation design, I could 
check off the boxes. Of, right, you know, right. Drawing cars from yeah. the age of three, loving cars like yeah, yeah, uh, with, yeah. with great passion. Uh, totally fascinated and the opportunity to go deep into, you know, studying cars and being able to think about their design and their formation and all the places you can take right, the, right. The, the design of cars would be fantastic. So that makes sense. Mm. But you all, you went into product uh, partway through. So what was that about? Well, I, I grew here at Art Center, not just as a person, but as a designer a lot. And, and I really started understanding what it was that fascinated me about cars. And when I look back at the cars that I had, they all had some sort of utility. I had Fox Body Mustangs, and those have a hatch, right? So they have a little bit more cargo area than your typical sports car, right? So that utility and how they worked and, and how they made me feel and how I used the vehicle is what really interested me when it came to, to vehicles. So when I was in the transportation design program, it's a great program and I learned a lot. But I had a lot of friends or I have a lot of friends in in the product design program and they were interviewing people, asking them what they needed, right? And being able to help somebody is what I enjoy a lot. So if I could do that through transportation, through through vehicles or, or vehicle systems, whatever, uh, I'm happy. That's, that's what I want to do. So I wanted to be a lot closer to the user. I didn't want to just uh, redesign a B-segment crossover or what's the next Mustang look like. No, it was, I want to question what is the next essential vehicle or vehicle platform or, or vehicle system that's going to have a greater impact uh, to the community. And were you not wrestling with questions of user experience in transportation design? Uh, yes, but it's, it, it's, it's more towards the, the tail end of developing a vehicle. After... I interned at CarLab, Eric Noble's company. Shout out, shout yeah, out to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's been he's more guy. than a mentor. Yeah, he's yeah. been wonderful. Um, we got to do a lot of user research and a lot of uh, and, and a lot of clinics for major OEMs. I actually took that internship between uh, what I was questioning whether I should switch or not. So that was right in the middle of my my transportation student career and, and, and switching over. But once once I saw the research that goes behind creating a platform for a vehicle, there was very little sketching, very little drawing, really understanding what the needs and the hard points were. Developing that was was where I knew I wanted to live within the design process. I knew that's where I could have uh, the greatest impact and, and really kind of shape the future of transportation and the vehicle itself. So let's talk about where you are with that huge question that you articulated about the user and what's needed in transportation and what's needed with the car now. And it's so refreshing and energizing for me to hear you talk about the fact that you were driven by this central question. So I'll turn it back <laughs> and say, well, where are you with that? How are you addressing it? What are your thoughts about that question? I really want to, to encourage people to use transportation. Public transportation, I'm sorry. Public transportation. Public transportation. Uh, buses, they have a really negative connotation here, I mean, especially in L.A. or California. You take the bus when you have to, not when you want to, right? So there's a lot of talk of electric cars being the future, and that's not always the case. Electric car is not necessarily more environmentally friendly or less environmentally degrading, right? It's 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 not a solves-all. But right now, my, my, my focus has, has really gone from understanding how people use their vehicles and how can we 
encourage them to to leave their vehicles Monday through Friday and take public transportation while they work. And everybody benefits from it because you reduce congestion, you reduce CO2. There's just so many benefits to it. Um, but it's really hard to change people's habits. Isn't the challenge convincing them? I mean, there are the values and there is yeah. the moral kind of thing yeah, there, in terms of our ethics and our citizenship. Mm-hmm. But is, isn't it fundamentally, if it's more convenient, they're going to do it. If it's easier to do, to get on a bus or get on a train, it'll take you to your destination uh, faster. Well, and and there's, there is an opportunity to design you know, user interactions or, or, or along those steps to make it easier and really encourage people. But I think it's really hard to give up that freedom that we have of getting in our vehicle and leaving when we want. But I think I think what I'm getting at is that there's something unique about L.A., maybe even the West Coast. You go to New York, right, right. or you go to a European city, and public transportation is a no-brainer. It is. It is, right. But L.A. is a different beast, no? Right, and I think that has a lot to do with with uh, the physical environment of it. It's a lot more open here and we get to drive in New York. It's it's really, really crowded in a lot of European cities it is too. And I think that that's forced a lot of people into public transportation because owning a car in New York or in, in most European cities, it's really expensive. And really inconvenient. And really inconvenient, right? So here we put up with traffic and that's a huge inconvenience. But for some reason, we don't let go of our car. True. Right. So that's the challenge. And, and, and that's, that's what I'm looking we can We can tax people until they ha- they're forced to take public transportation or bump up gas prices until they have to. But that's, uh, that's not the, the proper way I feel to go about it. But does the infrastructure exist to create the kind of public transportation opportunities that we would need in, a, in Southern California? What's your sense of that? What kinds of systems do you think are needed in order to create a world where we would be drawn to a more public-oriented transportation? I think we have to take several approaches at, at, at the same time. It's not just, just one way. Um, I think we need to, maybe through, say, the help of Hollywood, right, we could uh, encourage young teens or, or preteens before they even start driving to take public transportation to make it a, a no-brainer and part of their routine so that when you do come to the age of, of owning a vehicle, they decide. It's not they're not forced to to have to buy a vehicle or, or drive. And we see that happening with Lyft and Uber, you know, young people are are waiting a little bit longer to get cars. But eventually they will, especially when, when one starts having kids, it's really hard to, to to take public transportation when you have a one or two year old, right? Uh, and I think that's something that public transportation hasn't really addressed. Right. Mm-hmm. When you're carrying around a stroller, uh, a baby seat, uh, you know, the bag, it's, it's, it's a lot. And maybe there's an opportunity there. But it, it's really hard for me to give up my car because I'm always carrying something. I'm, I, I, I bought a panel van because I'm always carrying something. I'm always going here, going there. So, so the routes that, that public transportation takes maybe aren't as convenient as, say, a lift. The lift in the long run, is more expensive than owning your own vehicle. And, and uh, along every step of, of transportation from leave, public transportation from leaving your house to your destination, there's an opportunity there to, to encourage a few more people to take it. Do you think we're close in Southern California? Because my assumption is that we would need a lot of new infrastructure and a lot more options. And But maybe I'm wrong. Do you think, do you think we're close uh, here? Do you think with what we have now, we could actually move the needle on this? Uh, I think it's difficult to tell 
the, the true progress we're making right now. We see a lot of those scooters out on on the road. Yeah. Um, but those have become a problem, right? There, there's there's a lot of they just leave them on the streets. A lot of pollution that comes from that from people just leaving them around, people being injured, so on and so forth. And those are great if you're an abled body, right? But when we consider the elderly or or children, they don't have the luxury of using some of those, right? So they have to go to a bicycle if, again, if they can. Um, so we look at the use of, you know, your traditional public bus, and it has its peak use in the morning and the afternoon when people commute to work and from. Uh, but in the downtime, it's empty, but it's still running the same routes. But if we look at people uh, who go to their dialysis appointments, right, those are usually off-peak hours, but there's no real public transport system for for some of those people who aren't able to drive, especially after the dialysis process. So is there a way for Metro or LADOT to offer some sort of service where we could take those buses on their downtime and offer it to for other services, again, like dialysis or, or students who maybe leave high school early to go work, right? And I'm sure there's there's programs and, and I know students get a discount, but there are, there's a lot of transportation needs that we need to look at, not just simply from getting from getting home to school or to work and back. So it's looking at everything. Right. But from listening to you, it does sound like there needs to be a lot more investment and a lot more design and a lot more infrastructure in order to make this work. Yes, yes. Uh, We definitely need to to make the investment, but invest it wisely into our public transportation and and really approach it from several different angles and really create a, a, a team with with sociologists, psychologists, not just not just designers, not just researchers, but a community of people that that, that, that want to push the, the, this public transportation, we we would all benefit from it. Knowing about your love of cars and knowing about the passion that you've held pretty much all your life, I guess I would have not necessarily expected you to propose a public <laughs> transportation solution, but that's interesting. And I'm wondering if the car... Mm. I'll tempt you even further, the Mustang, right, 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 right. right? And the public transportation system. I mean, do those exist in a kind of tension for you? Or what comes through that you would actually let this commitment or the ethics of what public transportation would bring to triumph over your love of the automobile? I, I think the the fact that I'm aware of the the, the cost or, or the damage, I guess, that, that I, the impact that I have from driving my car, uh, as far as like the environment goes, I don't buy a car just for one or two years. I keep it as long as possible. I bought mostly used cars before and kept them for a long, long time. So when we consider, you know, the the full life cycle of a vehicle, the longer we keep it, the less impact it has. So I'm aware of the impact that I have on on the environment. So I try to compensate in other areas, right? Keeping my my CO2 levels down. Mm. Just being aware of all of our other actions, I think, helps. That's why when people say that electric cars are the future, I don't necessarily believe so. Say more about that. What's your concern about electric cars? Well, when we consider the full life cycle of an electric car, um, you know, from the production line to when somebody actually receives it, on average, depending on where you are and how your energy is generated, uh, you need about 85,000 miles put on the electric car to break even with an with the traditional internal combustion engine powered vehicle in terms of its impact on on the world and on climate right it's it's co2 uh, footprint right because uh, we have to consider and that goes back to the right yeah, manufacturing the of the battery yes exactly so so the and, and, and the making of the electricity exactly right so the, when it comes to the batteries 
we still don't know how to recycle the right. battery 100%. We don't. Um, Tesla claims, I think, somewhere about 80%, but we don't know what they mean by that, whether it's the casing, whatever it may be. And and the thing is, we, we don't know what battery chemistry is going to win. So companies aren't willing to invest a lot of money into these recycling programs for a battery that will be obsolete within three years. But you're saying they need to hit 85,000 miles to start being a benefit. A to, benefit as far as? To the world. Yes. So all these hybrids were, were buying and electric cars were buying and beautiful Teslas that were buying. They're really not doing what they need to do in terms of taking care of our environment? Not in every case. There are some cases. Uh, I'm sure there's an electric car owner who fills their car up with five people every single time and it's solar power. I see, but that's it. Sure. it. It's the amount of miles they put on it and how the efficiency how of how they used, use it right. uh, in terms of yeah, and multiple then, yeah. passengers and that kind of thing. Right. So, yeah, on, on average, it's 85,000 miles. Um, but if we say we have an electric bus, then, then it all changes because now you can take 40 people at the same time. Right. right. As opposed to just one person. Though you so still need to like, hit a certain mileage to, yeah. to be able to right. to start creating a benefit of to, that electric right, bus. Break even, yeah. And and the bus is is gonna hit those eighty five thousand miles a lot sooner than of course. than a privately owned vehicle because of course. vehicles sit around ninety percent of the time. That's what fascinates me about the the product design approach. To, to a problem. There, there, there's so many uh, questions that we need to ask and so many opportunities to to find at least a solution or a step forward to, to being a bit more efficient with our transportation. Okay, just to wrap up this bit of the conversation, a lot of us uh, lay people are uh, thinking that we're, you know, doing our, our jobs and doing our duty by purchasing electric cars and, mm -hmm. and being good citizens. But I think you're offering a, a disillusionment to that that notion and uh, and just wonder what really the message ought to be in terms of how we think about our cars and what we're looking for. Electric cars do help and, and, and are sustainable in some occasions, not always. I think as, as individuals, uh, we need to do our research and really map out how we use our vehicles and, and try to understand how vehicles are manufactured and disposed of or recycled, if at all. Electric cars, again, not so much because of the battery. So if you're going to keep that electric car for 200,000, 300,000 miles, if they last that long, uh, then then maybe. But if if you're just going to use it on the weekends, if you're only going to put a couple thousand miles and then get rid of it, you did no, there was no benefit, benefit to that. So we need to to do our own research and really understand how we impact and how our lifestyle, if, if, if it is beneficial to have uh, an electric vehicle. And we're recording. Hey, my name's Kevin A. Beard, and I'm the Director of Wearables and Soft Goods Design at Art Center College of Design. I'm an alumnus of Art Center, so I have a degree in product design. My major focus is on creating the next generation of designers. The Hillside Classroom for Studio is their big open echoey spaces and that smell of Chavant clay when you walk in the door and the building, the way it hums and moves and 
students rushing around. Vince came into the classroom, into product four. He was so hungry for something new that he put in an extraordinary amount of effort. He's got an incredible work ethic. Well, his first uh, foray into product design was, was a challenge. It's never a straight line for students at that point in their education because he was coming in as a transportation design major thinking about, you know, I don't really fit into transportation design. I want something more. I want some more process. I want more in-depth thinking about consumers and place. And at first, for the first few weeks, it was really painful. I remember working with him and it was so new and so exciting that it was a little bit overwhelming for him, I think, to discover that this is what I was looking for and now I've got to try and figure out how to deal with it. He grabbed onto it quickly and he's got a lot of creativity that allowed him to come up with things that were interesting and different. He taught himself basically how to sew to create his uh, final project, a wearable for winter sports in Austria. So he took deep dives into Salzburg culture and architecture and really came up with beautiful colors based on what he discovered in Salzburg, created a pattern for the lining of the jacket that he ended up creating, found different ways to close it, assemble it, and it was just a beautiful piece with beautiful materials. It really was a joy at the end of that term. And so Vince's skill was that he had an open mind. So everything that he did in, in that class was his own capability, his own curiosity. Vince is a really quiet, thoughtful guy, very friendly, very well-spoken, very polite. And he's a very different man now than he was when I first taught him in product four. I had him again later in his Art Center career, and I hadn't seen him for maybe 18 months. He was so different, so confident, so thoughtful and organized and put together. It was just such a different character. It was, it was a little bit shocking. Vince has this uh, kind of shy yet knowing smile and laugh when he's it's almost like he's been caught <laughs> doing something that was the reaction that I got so I knew that he was uh, feeling pretty good about his direction and uh, we joked about it a little bit and the overall impression was of Vince as a fully developed designer and ready to take on the world So I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you to talk a little bit about your final thesis project here at Art Center, sure. uh, Incognito, which was the NEAT spelled with N-E-A-T yeah. as in NEATO. Yeah. And for you to just describe the project and then maybe we can get into some of the ideas behind it and your own interest in that. Sure. So the project, uh, my thesis was a modular replacement interior for sedans 
to support those experiencing homelessness living out of their vehicles. So trying to make that that life stage a little bit easier. And that was all uh, inspired by me living out of my car while I was out on an internship up in San Jose. Unfortunately, homelessness is a growing trend. I don't know if we can call it a trend, uh, but it affects a lot of people. And it's, it's not an easy issue. There's no solution really to it yet, but we can help uh, improve the life of the people that are experiencing it. And this project was really a, a step forward, a step towards understanding what these people go through. And usually we hear about people converting vans or you know vehicles that they can stand up in and less about cars or sedans mm-hmm. as places for them to, to create a home, right. really. And mm-hmm. what was your interest in sedans in particular? So I was I was up in an internship in, in San Jose with Acton Global. And out in San Jose, there's a lot of people living out of their cars, a lot. So much so that the county put up signs not allowing vehicles over six feet tall to park in residential areas mm. and in some mm. industrial areas. So a lot of these people would, would go to work, and when they come back, their car slash home had been towed. Right. So if we take a, a sedan, which for one person, there's enough living space. I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, things you kind of have to, to give up, but you, you'll avoid that harassment. And while I was there, uh, when I interviewed some of the people that, that were living out of their, their cars, they turned me on to the, the, San, the My San Jose app. And in this app, uh, residents can uh, report, you know, knocked over streetlights or, you know, graffiti or, you know, different things that they, they want to fix. They could also report abandoned vehicles. And a lot of the times they weren't abandoned. This was somebody that was living out of their car but couldn't really keep it neat because space is very, very limited uh, and would get their homes towed. We also have to understand the residents' perspective, right? They don't want these huge RVs, huge cars. So this felt like a great compromise. This is to help everybody kind of help both sides understand each other. You've done a beautiful job of describing the the problem space. Can you tell us about your solution and the elements of the solution that you've created with Incognito? Sure. So it's a seven-piece system. Uh, some uh, So the interior is replaced, the rear seats, and the front passenger. We don't touch the driver's seat because of crash testing and, and, and safety. Uh, we do have some auxiliary storage in the trunk. And what I learned from interviewing a lot of these people that, that live out of their vehicles, they tend to park away from their job and they ride a bike or a scooter or some sort of powered vehicle to their job because they don't want people to know they're living out of their car or they don't want to be picked to drive everybody for happy hour, right? So that gives us an opportunity to use a bike rack, right? And we could store some stuff there. So from the outside... All you really see is a bike rack, which is quite common. So you're not really attracting attention. You're not asking for people to harass to, to harass you. And there you store stuff uh, that you don't use on the daily. And on top, we have a solar panel with a battery for, for so you can plug in extra lights at night. And you have a pop-out um, canopy for some shade. And this project focuses on three major uh, elements, sleeping, working, and social. So describe the sleeping. So the sleeping, so the front passenger seat, uh, the headrest folds backwards and it folds completely flat and the, the the front side of the seat extends towards the glove compartment. And this interior is modular, so it fits 
current and previous generations of the most popular sedan. So your Fusions, your Accords, your Camrys, the dimensions and are, are very, very similar. So with a little bit of adjustment, we could have it fit all, right? So with it completely flat, you get over eight or about eight feet, which fits most people. Yeah. Being completely flat, right? And the back seat, they usually fold down. So instead of folding down, we have it fold up. And on the bottom side, uh, we have uh, like a grid system of bungee cords. Uh, so when you're going to sleep, you can put your iPad or your iPhone there for entertainment. A lot of us, you know, watch a show or read something before going to sleep. And this way, you don't have to hold it, right? Uh, and then next to, to that seat. And by the way, before you go on, so you've totally replaced the manufacturer's seat. You've taken it out and you've put in your own seat. Those have been replaced, yeah. And we also take advantage of the 12 volts running to the motors to adjust, which most cars have nowadays, uh, using an inverter to to output 110 volts, right? So that you could run your laptop, run, you know, some sort of heating element for your food. And then this the passenger seat, the rear passenger seat behind the driver's seat. So that seat is actually the closet. It's replaced and the seat what would be where you would sit down is up to that height. And that is enough for, for shirts, folded pants, and your accessories, T-shirts, belts, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So there's enough storage. And to know exactly how much room I needed, um, you know, I interviewed people, and, and they usually live on about a 10-day cycle worth of clothes and food. So 10 days worth of clothes I laid out, and I packaged it, uh, and it all fits within that volume behind the seat. So if somebody's passing by, you can't see the closet. And if you're on the other side, windows down, you still can't see it. So again, very, very incognito, right? Right, yeah. Right. So, so. And where do you imagine these cars to be parked? Well, so these cars will be parked in residential areas. Industrial areas, um, there's a greater chance of, of somebody breaking into a car. So they tend to, to want to sleep in, in a residential area. In case something goes wrong, there's always somebody nearby. Are you aware of uh, the safe parking program? Yes, but that's only here in L.A. San Jose and, and Santa Clara don't have it. Talk about great design. That's a wonderful solution, right? Right, right. And But those lots will eventually fill up, right? Can you explain to the listeners what safe parking is? So safe parking are, are dedicated parking areas for people that are living out of their cars to go and spend the night there. Uh, and some In a parking lot in a in business a, or an organization yeah. where they're not being used at night and they can be there and... Be safe and be safe, yeah, not and be harassed, uh, harassed not be, or yeah. annoying uh, people in their residential and neighborhoods. Or right, being annoyed by more probably more apt. Yeah, and they just have to. Often they have to be out during business hours, and then they come back at night. They have to clean up their space and and. Right, and they have security, safe parking typically yeah. does, and they have uh, some bathroom facilities as well. Right, right, yeah. If it's an official uh, safe parking zone, then then they do. And California is actually looking into allowing. Uh, community college students to park their vehicles on campus and use their facilities uh, for this for the same reason because it's, it's, it's uh, so many people are are living out of their vehicles. Right. So where are you with this project now? Are you trying to take it to market? Are you trying to to develop it at all, or is it really going to just kind of hover there as a as an idea for now? No, uh, I'm refining it and I'm working on a one one scale model for some of the parts uh, so that I could pitch it and hopefully get this manufactured. The The original project was co-branded with REI Co-op uh, just because it kind of fits what they would do, right? And since it is a life stage 
we don't want them to live permanently out of their car unless they want to, of course. Mm -hmm. But if it could be passed on since it is a modular system, maybe the second or third or fourth user can save some money by buying it used. And speaking of the money, do you have a sense, an estimate at all of what it would take to take your typical uh, Toyota Corolla and, and convert <laughs> it into a, an to incognito car? Yeah. So there was a price and it could be built for about, about four grand. But I was encouraged to maybe push it up a little bit. What we need to understand is in San Jose, some of the people that are living out of their cars make $90,000 a year. But rent out there is $35,000 a year on average. And a lot of them don't believe in, in going out there and making you know decent money and throwing it all away. Those are their words, throwing it away on rent. So, so there is some. Can I just probe that for a moment? What, sure. Because I want to make sure I understand what you mean. They have to spend thirty-five thousand dollars a year to rent what? Uh, your one-bedroom condo or apartment. Uh, it, it rent out there is ridiculously expensive. It's, I see. It's it's really really bad. I see. But what if they just rent a room in a house, or they they go for something less expensive? I mean, it's a choice to mm -hmm. live in that space instead of in your car. Right. I interviewed. Residents who had been priced out of their homes, day laborers who, who make maybe a little bit more than minimum wage, uh, migrant workers, you know, tech employees who make on average $90,000 a year. And when it comes to, to finding a room, they're gone quick. It's really hard to find a room. Uh, and sometimes there's a three-month waiting list or they check your credit. So the way that this was priced was affordable for most people. Not just the, the, the day laborers can afford it too, um, and, and so could right. the, the tech workers. But the, what you're the, saying the, from your findings is that you either have to pay three thousand dollars a month, mm. or the only other choice is to you're out, live in your car. In your car, yeah. Wow. It's yeah. It's it's sad. Well, when when I first went out there, uh, I, one of my uncles has an RV, and I asked him. I was like, Hey, I know people are living. I had heard that people were living on their RVs. I thought I could save some money. Find you know. A, a cool place to to park my RV, but even for for a block of cement that's twenty feet wide by thirty feet in length was about eighteen hundred bucks a month. And I guess what you're also saying though is that the people you spoke to would rather live in their cars yeah. than spend what would be approximately a third of their gross salary right. on rent, yeah. which is rule of thumb, what I've always thought, right? right? That's what you can do. You can uh, rent or purchase. You can mm -hmm. spend somewhere in the neighborhood of a th third of your gross salary. Right. But you're saying people choose not to do that. Yeah. You're, you're, and would rather live in their cars. You're tech workers, right? They, they see it as $35,000 a year thrown away because they don't own. But your, your residents who've been priced out of their homes can't afford that rent and don't want to leave their hometown. That's all they know. They see they see living out of their car as a stand against these tech companies that are pushing them out of their hometown. Hmm. And have you gotten any traction on this? I mean, you said you're perfecting it, but are you have you started to try to bring it to market? Uh, I've talked to a couple of people, and they're really interested. They, they think that they're they're happy that I'm trying to help. And I have one company that's really interested in in getting it going. And if everything goes well, um, I mean, they still need to get a lot of funding. It's kind of a startup thing. Maybe within about a year or two, we could maybe get it going. But I don't, I don't, I, I want to pitch it to other companies. But 
my my aunt has a, a Honda Accord, and I'm using that as the base for to to really kind of know this down. And, and I'm not an engineer, right? But I am mechanically inclined, so I, I I'm getting as close as I can, so that it would be easy to hand off to an engineering team that could easily get this into sure. production, right? I, sure. I, it's it's not just a hey, I have this great idea, give me money, let's get it built, right? I want to show that hey, this is this is serious. We could really help a lot of people with this, and I've gotten it so close to with a little bit of of actual, you know, engineers working on it. We could really have a product that that can have such a huge impact on something that's affecting so many people. Beautiful. So you know, the name of this podcast is Change Lab, and we talk a lot about change, and change is critical to the fundamental mission of Art Center. And right, right. I think I can extrapolate from what you've said today mm -hmm. how you think about change, but I do want to ask you very directly as a kind of final question, sure. final big question I sure. understand <laughs> about uh, how you think about the change that you want to create in the world and the um, way in which you hope to move forward with making that change happen as you take your education at Art Center and your clear passion for everything from cars to making the world a better place, how you move forward with it all. I think everyone has has a unique talent or, or personality or something. And, and we can use that, you know, for the negative. We can use it for selfish reasons or we can use it to, to help others, right? So I have a need to solve problems, to solve, to help people, right? Not just to solve math problems because I don't not big on math, right? But moving forward in, in whatever project it is, I need to know who it is, who's going to benefit from it. Or if we can kind of maybe expand the target audience who, who it might help to, to include more people. So whatever it is, I always try to find the problem and who's going to benefit from it. Who are we going to help? And once that's clear, the ball just starts rolling. And you're in gear. Yeah, it, I'm yeah. just ready. I'm excited. Okay, yeah. cool. This is going to make it easier for somebody, right? That's beautifully said. And I just reflect back your language, right? I mean, mm. I hear people all the time saying, I want to help people. I want to solve problems. I hope to make the world a better place. Mm. I don't know if you realize it, but your language is, I need to solve problems. <sighs> yeah. I, it's like, it's fundamental it's like you need to breathe yeah uh, i i think kind of to kind of tie it back to you know my humble back my upcoming right where where we couldn't have a lot if it's not solving a problem or making my life easier it's i don't know it's just for looks it's just fun and i think at least my time could be better spent in moving the needle forward we as people have accomplished so much but there's still a lot of inequality and trying to reduce that inequality i think it's everybody's responsibility well i need to uh express my gratitude to you <laughs> <laughs> for a lovely conversation and thank you inspiring um, work and uh it's uh it's so great to explore with somebody like yourself thank you what this is all about and why we're doing it and what this education can mean and where we can take it. And yeah. we're fortunate that you graced our halls for oh, these I, years. I and, appreciate uh, it. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the opportunity to be here. 
Change Lab is produced out of Art Centre College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin.